Welcome to the Kenosha City Church Podcast. In this message, Pastor Andy talks about how we can engage with others who don't agree with us in a way that doesn't lead to enraging others. This is based on the example of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Enjoy the message. I'm going to lay a foundation of being able to dialogue with people with whom you don't agree with. Because uh, here's a newsflash. Not everybody is you. All right? Did you know that? Not everybody thinks the same way as you. Not everybody holds the same nuances of, of what they believe as you. And listen, what I'm not saying today is that there's no objective truth or that God's word is, is up to the eye of the beholder. No, we affirm, we take God at his word, and, and God's word leads us and directs us and guides us. But even if you come to the conclusion that God, God's word is God's word and we're going to follow it, you have to understand there's going to be people that don't believe that. And so uh, one way of going about it is saying, well, they don't believe that, I'm not going to talk to them. Or another way is we dialogue and we figure out why do people believe what they believe. And so we're going to lay that foundation today. The gospel of Jesus ought to bring the best out in us. And often the way that we engage people, whether it be with the gospel or whether it's politics or whether it's the social issue of the day, we bring the absolute worst out in each other, right? Can we agree with that? Even if we don't agree on all issues in life or in the voting booth or whatever, we can agree. We live in some pretty toxic times now, don't we? Right? And so this is the big idea today, is that we are called to engage not in rage. We're called to engage and not in rage. There are people in this room that are followers of Christ. They're Christians. Maybe some people, they're like part-time Christians. They're like, well, they're, they're kind of checking things out in church again. And then there are people here today that think Christians are nuttier than a jar of peanut butter, all right? And so we have people from just checking Jesus out all the time, or they're just here. They're invited by different people. But here's the deal. What do you think people think of when they hear the word Christian? Or let's add a couple other words with that. Uh, Christian, uh, evangelical, uh, let's, uh, church. In fact, we don't need to guess. Surveys have recently been taken. And by far the majority of the people, when they hear those words put together, it's not positive, it's negative. They say that the church is judgmental or it's intolerant or it's narrow-minded or it's bigoted. In just a few decades, Christianity has gone from the majority morality to the morality that are living on the sidelines. So this is the challenge if you call yourself a follower of Christ. This is the challenge. Is that, yes, it, we are living in unprecedented times. We are living in unprecedented times. We're living in a time where the culture is trending away from the faith and increasingly becoming hostile to the things of Jesus. Today, people are leaving the faith and cultures reflecting a godless point of view uh, where people are becoming their own authorities and truth is up for grabs in the eye of the beholder. We are in unprecedented times. Where are we? I mean, let's think about it. Really? I hear about that all the time. Like, we're in unprecedented times. And, and we're like, oh, no. And like, we hide or we try to fight for what's left. And it's like, are we in unprecedented times? I'll tell you, when I read through the Bible, I don't think people that follow God, that, that follow Christ, these are really unprecedented times at all. I mean, perhaps for the life of, of people that are living in the West or in the United States of America, these are unprecedented times the last 20 and 30 years. But when I look at the totality of history, to follow God, to follow the God of the universe has always meant swimming upstream against the cultural thought and prevalent thought of the day. I mean, let's just take a few people from the Bible. And if you grew up in the, in, in the, uh, going to church or Sunday school, confirmation, all these different things, you might remember some of these, some of these people. The first is Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah, if you flip your Bible to the middle of the Bible, if you flip it open, you're either going to be in the book of Psalms or Jeremiah, all right? Jeremiah has one, some of you are going to try this now, all right? So, but uh, as you flip over your Bible, that book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was a prophet. He was a prophet during the time of the nation of Israel, where it was split in two. Israel, the northern kingdom, was in exile, and the southern kingdom, Judea, was worshiping a countless number of pagan gods, which, which upset the God of Israel, and so God spoke to Jeremiah and said, you are going to be my mouthpiece. You are going to represent a nation, and you, what I say through you is going to be the actual word of God. Now, if you woke up in the middle of the night and God spoke to you, and he's like, listen, I'm going to give you a message, and the whole world's going to hear it. I'd be like, man, that's pretty cool. <laughs> like, that's really Like, God is actually going to use me to reach people? This is going to be awesome, right? But listen what God tells Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7, 27, he says, when you speak all these things to them, they will listen to you. You will be a national hero. They'll put you into office. Uh, you will be on every show. You'll have the best clothes. People are going to absolutely love you. That's not what it says. When you speak all these things to them, they will not listen to you. When you call, them, when you call to them, they will not answer you. Basically, what he's saying is, Jeremiah, your whole life is going to be a mouthpiece of God. And guess what? Nobody's going to listen to you. Nobody. Now, in, in, you know, being successful, you know, the, you know, we all want to be successful. If you were to look at that on paper and you look at the metrics and all that stuff, you'd be like, well, Jeremiah, oh, man, he should have been fired. He's a loser. No, he was called by God to give a message, and the results were nothing's going to happen. But yet, Jeremiah was faithful, and he loved the people that he was sharing. They were his own people. The nation grew so complacent in their faith that they began to die in their faith. And yet Jeremiah would only be sustained. He'd be sustained through the word of God and the spirit of God. That's, that's Jeremiah. There's Daniel. Some of you might remember Daniel. You've heard of Daniel. Daniel in the lion's den, right? There's much more to his story than Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel uh, served uh, when uh, Judea was in exile. And God placed favor on him in a secular world. Uh, he began interpreting dreams for uh, the kings. In fact, uh, Daniel served in three different political regimes of these uh, uh, when Israel was in captivity. And so he was an advisor to whom the nation of Israel would say, these are our enemies. Well, he was an advisor uh, uh, for uh, while he's in captivity. He had influence. But there was a point to where his influence was contingent on if he was going to worship the false gods of the other nations, and he went and do that and enter in the story of Daniel in the lion's den. It goes on in the New Testament where the church was formed. The followers of Christ in the early church had to face cultural tides and even laws that prohibited uh, the worship of Jesus. Uh, during these times, to be a follower of Christ, it often meant being ostracized. It often meant uh, that you could lose your job, your influence, uh, suffering the loss of your freedom, even death. This is what the early church faced, and yet within the first year of the resurrection of Jesus, 10,000 people willfully said yes to Jesus and was willing to risk it all. Within five years, persecution hit and people began to die for their faith, and the church began to spread throughout the known world where secular and biblical historians alike said it is so hard to put a number because it was called a multitude throughout the world. Peter writes this in his letter in 1 Peter 2.11. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. So when I look at Scripture from the Old Testament, New Testament, these times are not unique at all, which means this. We can stop being defensive 
and actually love people in this world and engage the people of this world. Our aim is to engage and not enrage. And so the reality is what we see here, what Peter wrote to us, he says that the followers of Christ are strangers to culture. I'm just gonna take the RS off. We're strange to culture, all right? If you say that you believe in God who resurrected from the dead, who empowers you with his same Holy Spirit that rose him from the dead to an unbelieving world, that's just, that is nutty, okay? But it's reality. It's the power of God. When you meet the power of God, you realize it's real. But as followers of Christ, we're called exiles. An exile literally means to be away from someone's home. If you're an exile, you're either forcibly removed from your home. Uh, it was a result of war. It was a result of famine. And exiles, they often lack citizenship and the ownership of property. Exiles often don't feel as if they belong. Exiles are often misunderstood. They're treated with contempt and even distrust. And exiles are rarely seen as a majority in a culture or a trajectory of where the culture is going. Now, there are, I know that for some of you, you're thinking, wow, exiles and sojourners. Boy, you want to talk about a political hot button today, right? And, and I know some of you are like, what do you think, Andy? What do you think, Andy? Well, here's the deal. I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that is the trajectory of my life and I realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ are gonna meet Democrats and Republicans and people that don't care about politics, right? But the reality is this. It's a big hot button topic in our issue. So how do followers of Christ, how do we treat sojourners and exiles? You may have a different political position on how to handle that in a political manner, but I wanna tell you this, no matter who a person is in your life, they are made in the image of God, and no matter their story or their background or whatever it is, I want you to know that they have a story, and that as a follower of Christ, we need to lean in, and we need to listen to that story, and we need to realize that God wants to meet them too. No matter what your politics are. And the reason why I need to bring this up, because we, if you're a follower of Christ, Followers of Christ, you are called an exile. This world is not your home. It's a temporary residence. So we need to make an assessment. Where's your faith? If you call yourself a follower of Christ, where is your faith this morning? Because I'm gonna say, if, you're a, if you say you're a follower of Christ, you're really in two categories. You're either leasing your faith, meaning you don't own it, someone gave it to you, you just kind of have it, or you're owning your faith. It is yours. What is it? What is it? Because we become a nation of borrowed faith. In Kenosha, we have grown up with borrowed faith. What is borrowed faith? It is actually taking somebody else's faith, whether it be your, your parents or, or whether it be your grandparents or great-great-grandparents or wherever it is, and you just are because that's what they were. You never personally say, I am a follower of Christ. I personally place my faith and trust in Christ. And because we live in a nation of borrowed faith, when the cultural trend goes away from a default Christianity, people have to make a stand. Okay, I'm either gonna be a follower of Christ or ah, this thing isn't really for me. And so you have to figure out where, where is your faith? Today, according to the census data, 62% of Kenosha County is characterized as a religious, they're just religious nothing, right? Uh, Generation Z and millennials make up the, the majority of that. And listen, I could be up here like many people on many commentaries and op-eds, right? And they're just, they get, you know, I just, I kind of liken it like this, you know, it's kind of like hiding underneath your pulpit, like, oh man, things are really bad out there, guys. Let's just, let's just, whoa, let's just whoa some more and whoa, right? And the thing is, no, I look at this, I'm like, this is a grand opportunity to talk to people that are not like you and me. 
that maybe have the only understanding of Jesus as something completely judgmental like the mean street preacher or completely just dead religion of something that just didn't make sense. When you meet the real and living Jesus, uh, the one who fills you with his Holy Spirit, and when you realize that you're forgiven and the spirit and power of God lives in you, you realize there's something completely different than what was passed down to me. For the mission of Christ to go forward, you have to own your faith intentionally adhering and living it out in the ramifications of the gospel. You need to engage and not enrage. And followers of Christ, I want you to know this. You're not to be people of presentations, but you're to be people that are for people. They hear people out. They need to see and hear the gospel, but they, our life needs to back it up. People need to feel loved even if they don't love Jesus. They need, to, uh, they need to understand that even if they reject uh, what you're saying, it's not that they're rejecting you, and they need to understand that even if they don't agree or ever agree with what you have to say, that they still feel the love of Christ come from you. They still feel loved and cared for. So I want to look at four ways we can engage without enraging. And again, no matter where you're at in the faith, I think you can apply this to, to really any areas of life. Because listen, here's the deal. I, I, just long for, I just long for good dialogue again in our culture. I long for, for dialogue to where if we don't agree, it doesn't mean we have to blow each other up or, or unfriend us or, or, or cancel us or ghost each other, right? So we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. The book of Acts is a, a book that recounts the beginnings of the church um, and so in the, the first half of the book of Acts, uh, people would often go to the synagogue uh, to share ideas. The synagogue was like the, the religious center of each city. But by the time we get to Acts 17, there's a shift. Uh, people are moving away from the synagogue and they're going to the marketplace. Uh, the marketplace, the everyday people that maybe not have been Jewish or not religious at all. And so Paul, we see in Acts 17, is traveling to Athens in Greece. And Athens uh, historically is a center of, of cultural diversity. In its heyday, several centuries before Christ, it had been uh, the greatest city in the world. It was home of such philosophers such as uh, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Athens was also a religious center. Almost every god, small g god, uh, in existence was worshipped here. In fact, a popular saying is, is that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a person. So Paul spent his time with the Lord uh, in his word uh, through uh, prayer, through reliance on the Holy Spirit, uh, to fuel his desire to reach people not like him. So the first way that we can engage people not like you, oh, this isn't, I'm sorry, this is like elementary, but I, I have to say this. The first way to be able to engage people like you is you actually have to connect with people not like you, right? And the reason why I say that is because I could say this a different way is if you're gonna connect with people not like you, my question is, followers of Christ, let me ask you this. Do you know anybody that doesn't know Jesus? Or are you just in a holy huddle? Or... Do you only talk to people that are the same political persuasion? Or do you talk to somebody that is, uh, you know, only a Packers fan, right? <laughs> you can get down to that level sometimes. I've seen it a few times. Connecting people that are not like you. Acts 17, 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God, as well as the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. And so Paul, he was waiting for whom? He was waiting for his buddies. Paul had been run out of the, the previous two towns. Uh, the religious people were, were ticked off about uh, him talking about Jesus, and they said, you need to get out of here. And so it was, the Bible describes it, a riot broke out. So he went to Athens to hang out and wait for his friends to meet up with him uh, there. 
And so Paul customarily went to the synagogue and, 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 and shared uh, uh, with uh, the Jewish people. Again, the reason why he did this is because uh, Christianity came out of uh, the synagogue, right? Uh, understanding Jesus, the, the synagogue was a place of religious uh, center, even for Christians. Christians would meet at the synagogue. And so uh, he would go to the synagogue, but again, uh, he wasn't getting a lot of traction there. So he said, you know what? I'm going to the marketplace. I'm going to go speak to people that don't know anything about Jesus. I am going to go to the marketplace. And as he did, uh, the Bible says here, he was provoked by the idols. He was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. An idol was anything that was usually a carved image of an animal or something, and uh, there was just different deities that people believed in, in in the different cities. And when they would bow down and worship these deities, they believed that gave them luck or, or wealth or health or or a number of other things. And when Paul saw this, because Paul believes that there's one true God, though the creator God and, and Jesus Christ came to this world, fully God, fully man, that we can be reconciled to God. Uh, it distressed him because people were, were bowing down to false gods. Now I want you to see here, this is so easily missed, is that you could read this and say, Paul was deeply annoyed. He was provoked at the people. So he went to the people to tell them a thing or two. No, that's not what it says. It says he was provoked by the idols. And here's the thing. This isn't just a, you know, an, uh, an early church thing. Our hearts, it's been said, our hearts are idol factories. Our hearts love idols. An idol is anything today that we, uh, whether it be an ambition, whether it be a possession, uh, it, is, it is something that we place in our heart higher than our creator God. Every single one of us, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, we love to idolize something. And Paul was provoked because he realized if we have an eye on our heart, it prevents us from seeing what we were made for in our creator God. So as Paul went to the city, he didn't, he wasn't provoked at the people, he's provoked at the ideas. And so he went to the people who have never heard of Jesus and he looked at them as not being too far gone. He looked at them and he would, I believe that he would even visualize what would this person look like if they were a follower of Christ. And in his heart, he realized this, there is nothing too tall that could prevent somebody from knowing God. You know, as a pastor, I hear that often. I hear people like, you know, if I just, I've heard this a, a ton of times, actually. People are like, if I went to church, Andy, your place would just immediately catch fire. I'm like, why? But, but they like literally believe that because you don't know what happened in my life. I'm like, and the thing is, God does. There's nothing too tall where God cannot meet you where you're at. And so Paul started talking with the philosophers. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were also debating with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Some of your translations may say, what's this babbler trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he's telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now notice this, this is like so true today. Like he's, he's sharing, right? I imagine, you know, Paul's leaning in, he's listening, he's sharing. And immediately some people are like, the scoffers like, look at that babbler, can't believe it. Can't believe he's so, he's so dumb. Blah, blah. Like he's like listening, they're like listing all these ad hoc, you know, attacks and, and trying to chop his feet off from out, uh, without even dealing with what he's talking about. And this is a culture that we're in today. All you have to do is go on to Twitter and, and the way that people usually debate you is first attack you, right? And that's, that's not right. And what we see here is Paul didn't return insult for insult, but rather he went right for the content of what each other was talking about. He was trying to engage, not enrage. 
So he connected with people that were not like him. And secondly, he leaned in and he listened. And that's what we need to do as well, too. When you're talking to somebody that is not like you, that doesn't believe like you do, or, or nuances things differently, you need to lean in and listen and say, okay, why do they believe that? Why they believe that? What, what in their backstory has caused them to believe this? Because every single person has a life story. I have, it's the thing I just thrive on in life. I love hearing people's backstories. And sometimes they are tragic. Sometimes they're like, wow, that's really awesome, right? The stories are so unique and they're so, so powerful. And so Paul leaned in and listened and, and so shall we. Verse 22, Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that you're extremely religious in every respect for as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar of which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So as I began to discuss, Paul leaned in and he listened. He listened with his ears, but he also listened with his eyes. Because as he was walking through the city of Athens, he noticed they had an altar, and the altar was basically dedicated to the unknown God. I mean, they were so tolerant that they wanted to make sure they didn't leave out a God they didn't know. And Paul's like, this is my opportunity. I get to share with them the God they don't know. The Athenians were known for their tolerance, their open-mindedness. But I will say this, their tolerance is very different than even the tolerance that we see today. You see, historical tolerance were these three things. Number one, there was objective truth. Secondly, because there was objective truth, each group of people believed they held an objective truth, which led to when people realized they had opposing viewpoints, that they would begin to dialogue it out and figure out, okay, where am I wrong or you're wrong, or they try to persuade each other, etc. This is normal tolerance, uh, historical tolerance. This is a tolerance where we tolerated each other, even if we didn't believe the same way, but we're going to talk about it. Uh, and historically, in nations that don't uh, subscribe to historical tolerance, they subscribe to what's called by the sword. Um, if you see uh, the sword on different flags of nations, or I've been, uh, I've been in different countries where they'd have a sword, and I said, hey, what's that sword about? And he said, well, this sword is if anybody doesn't believe the way I do. I was like, whoa, okay, all right, well, I'll just keep quiet. So, but again, historical tolerance realizes there's gonna be different uh, and opposing viewpoints. The shift in tolerance has occurred uh, really actually recently in history. Uh, the shift from a black and white where we believe that there is an objective truth to shades of gray or relative truth. Today, many see truth as a uh, true if it seems relevant for the moment. So this is what really the new tolerance looks like. The new tolerance is there's no objective truth. So secondly, if there's no objective truth, then each group can believe what is true for them. So you may have heard this before when you're talking. Someone may say, well, that's true for you, but this is what's true for me. And so we've taken what's historically been opinion and we take true and false statements, and we make those, we make opinions, uh, we make those opinions. And so each group be uh, believes they have truth, and so if that's true for you and this is true for me, then we can't talk about it. Or if we do talk about it, we need to celebrate uh, and embrace the different viewpoints. And what's happened because of this is that if you have a different viewpoint on a certain subject and you disagree with it, uh, people will unfriend you, they'll unfollow you, they'll call you names, uh, they'll say, I want not, you, nothing to do with you in my life, when in reality, uh, if it wasn't for these viewpoints, you would feel nothing but love with each other. And so tolerance has shifted. And what's curious about this new view of tolerance is that it holds a moral absolute that there are no moral absolutes, which is interesting. Let's demonstrate it this way. I hold that there are objective truths, and I hold that, uh, that 
You can come to a uh, place where you believe in objective truth. We take God at his word. That is what guides, that's what filters, that is our worldview, that is our truth. But the thing is, I realize there are people that don't believe in the Bible and that they believe that's objective truth and so I believe that we can uh, lovingly and relationally dialogue. But in today's day, that can be seen as hate. I want you to know this. There is objective truth. If I were to stand in the corner of Pershing and 60th and a semi came barreling down and I was like, my truth today is that I'm gonna grunt really hard and that semi is just gonna go right through me, right? I'm, like, I'm gonna be like Obi-Wan Kenobi, force, all right? It's gonna go right through me, right? Um, no, it would, it would splatter me to a million pieces, right? Because the truth is, just by pure physics, I could not withstand a semi going 40 miles an hour in the middle of Pershing and 60th. So the key is this. Biblical tolerance is to understand the truth of what God's word says and dialogue and engage with people who don't know God or, don't, or reject God in order for people to understand the revelation of God. And again, it is never for you to produce results. Uh, you can never produce results. That is up to the heart of that person and God. When you lean in and listen, uh, you don't do it to form an argument, but you do it to actually figure out where the person is coming from. And during this time when you lean in and listen, you ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom and guidance and where to go uh, in the conversation. So we need to connect with people not like you, and we need to lean in and listen. Third is you need to find common ground. Find common ground. Now, when Paul connected, he leaned in and listened, and he began to establish common ground, not by joining hands and saying, we are the world, kumbaya, right? Everything's the same. No, he realized not everything was the same. But Paul still wanted to find common ground so that people could understand where he was coming from. This was his common ground. We see this in verse 24. He begins to, after listening, leaning in, listening, he begins to explain uh, his vantage point. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, and it does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. For one man he has made every nationality to live over the earth uh, and has determined appointed times and boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we also are we are also his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Paul, in his argument now, appeals to creation. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I look up in, this, in, this, in the starry night, and I know here in Kenosha, there's about 15 of them, but like when I grew up in Iowa and I would go out in the farm fields and I'd look up in the sky, I'd be like, there's billions of stars. And it can't help make you think, wow, Creation cries out something greater than me. And that's what Paul is saying. He's, he, he's appealing to creation that because of creation, we're without excuse, that creation screams a creator. And this creator God cannot be contained in an idol. It cannot be made by our own ambitions. But to bridge this understanding, Paul did something that even in some of the church today we think is unthinkable. Verse 28, Paul actually quotes one of the secular poets to prove his point. This would be like us quoting a secular song in church or, or movies or, or you know, anything that's outside the realm of, of scripture. He's quoting a poet to serve as a bridge for them to understand, the Athenians to understand the revelation of God. He's finding common ground. Every single one of us have opportunities to connect with people that are not like you. To find common ground. But you know what puts a wet blanket on all that? When people sniff a judgmental attitude. 
You know, I mean, even if you're in the church or not in the church, you know, you hear people quote, well, Jesus said, judge not, right? It's the favorite Bible verse of people that, of, of, of probably everybody, right? You know, judge not, especially like when you feel like you're being judged, it's the one that you'll throw out whether you're a follower of Christ or not, right? Judge not. But what does Jesus actually mean by that, you know? Uh, Jesus actually did a lot of, he did a lot of judgment calls. But what we're told to in scripture is that we aren't to judge somebody that they're so far gone that they can never meet the love of God. They can never meet the love of Christ. So here's some practical signs that you have a judgment and attitude. I just wanted to add this in here because, man, this is a killer. This is a killer. This is why the mean street preacher in Vegas, he, he's the definition of all these things, all right? So here's some signs that you may have a judgmental attitude. Number one is you're more concerned about other people's sins than your personal sin. You're more concerned about other people's sins than your personal sin. Because it's easy to talk about other people. It's hard to look at yourself. Number two you hold personal grudges and gossip about somebody. Oh, that is so fun though, right? Especially when it passed the day and you know, you're, at the, you're, you're, you're on break and it's like, oh man, let's, let's, let's come on, I, just, I want some news. You know, it's like, it's like reality TV, but it's reality, right? And so, but the thing is, busting somebody down when we do that. Third, so you cancel, unfriend, unfollow people with differing views. Listen, there may be a time to silence somebody on social media, especially when they're just, they're just ripping people to pieces, right? But oftentimes, we live in a culture where we just want to cancel everybody that's not like us. And fourth is we refuse to engage with truth. Now, that seems like an odd one to be a judgmental attitude, but here's the deal. If you refuse to engage someone with truth lovingly and relationally, it means either A, you don't believe what you believe, or secondly, you don't believe that person, it's for them. And I want you to know Jesus, I believe, can meet anybody and everybody, no matter where they're at, no matter what their background is, right? He meets you where you're at, and he takes you where he's going. And the thing is, is I remember just hearing this uh, statement from, uh, um, I think it was Penn and Teller. And he was, uh, uh, they were, they were uh, he's an, uh, I think it's Penn, he's, a, he's an avid atheist. But yet someone shared his faith with him, and he's like, you know what, I was really blessed, and here's the reason why. I got to thinking about this. How much, if you really believe in the reality of the afterlife and heaven and hell, how much would you actually have to hate somebody to not share that something with somebody? He's right. He's right. So we need to eradicate ourselves of a judgmental attitude. And fourth, after you've connected, after you've listened and leaned in and listened and, and found common ground, then you can ask permission in the sense of, hey, do you mind if I just share my story? Can I share my story? This is usually where people start. And it's like, people are like, I didn't ask to hear your story. Listen, always start by asking what somebody else's story is. You want to know why? Can we all admit this? We all like to talk about ourselves, don't we? Right? If someone, tell, if someone asks something that you're passionate about, we can just go for it for a while. But the thing is this, pause and ask somebody else about their story first. But when you get through all that, ask permission if you can share your story because I want you to know your story and how you've met Jesus is so important and it is so powerful. There is no doubt in my mind Paul shared his story. Paul was a murderer. He used to murder Christians and then God met him on the road. God spoke to Paul and his life changed. He went from a murderer. He went from somebody that is, that is uh, uh, completely opposed to the things of God to someone who wrote over half of the New Testament. And Paul shared his story, and then he shared who Christ was. Verse 30, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, he's sharing what Jesus is all about here to the Athenians. God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. And he's provided proof to this to everyone by the raising him from the dead. 
When they heard the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. Again, people ridiculing. But others said, we'd like to hear more from you again about this. So Paul left their, their presence. However, some people joined him and they believed him. Paul found common ground. He shared his story. Some people said, you're nuts. Some people are like, hmm, I'd like to hear it more again. They're like my Uber driver. Hey, I'd love to connect with you some more. And some people are like, I'm in. I want to follow Jesus. But you know the thing? No matter the response, if he's being ridiculed or whether they're like unsure or they're going to follow, he loved him. And we need to love everybody in our life no matter where they are at. They need to see the love of Christ even if they're not willing to place their life in Christ. And here's the deal. Oftentimes the reason why people refuse to engage people unlike them is because they've been ridiculed. Here's the deal. If one person's life is changed because of your story of what Jesus did through you, it is worth the ridicule of an entire life. And that is the reason why I believe Jeremiah was told to preach to a people, to speak to a people who would never accept him for one minute of his life. And it's because of this. It's not about the results that we need to produce. It's about the results that Jesus is gonna produce and we need to be obedient no matter the results he does produce. Does that make sense? And in this life, we need to love people that are in our life, whether they believe exactly like us or not. And I'm not saying that what we believe does not matter. It does matter. We believe that Jesus is he's the way, the truth, and the life. No person comes to the Father in heaven except through him. We see this even through Paul where he says we need to repent. We need to have a change of mind to who Jesus is because he says in verse 31, a day is coming when he will judge the world. But listen, Jesus came to this world so that we not be judged, but that we would have life, life eternal to anyone and everyone who places their faith in him alone. So here's some takeaways. Number one is, who are you having conversations with, especially with people that are not like you? If you're a follower of Christ, do you know any non-Christians, right? If you don't, start meeting non-Christians and don't, and, and don't meet them to give a presentation. Meet them because they're people and meet them because, because you wanna hear their story. Number two, how is the Holy Spirit leading your conversation? And number three, who do you need to ask for forgiveness? Have you ever been just even a piece of that mean street preacher, right? Who do we need to ask forgiveness? Well, when we impact God's word, we don't want to just be somebody who knows the word. We want to know the person of Jesus Christ. And you can't know Jesus just by knowing things about him. You need to know him personally. Do you have a relationship with Almighty God. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? You see, he created you to have a relationship with him. Did you know that? He, you were wonderfully and fearfully made in your mother's womb. You were created to know God. The problem is we've sinned. We've done something wrong in our past, in our present, and undoubtedly in our future. And that sin separates us from Almighty God. You see, God requires perfection in heaven. And not one of us, including you, including myself, we're not perfect. And so sin separates us from Almighty God. And what people try to do is they try to get to God by religion. They try to get to God by doing good works or to prove themselves. But none of these things will get us to God. In fact, our righteousness is but filthy rags, is what Scripture says. And so it requires a miraculous, uh, a, a miraculous happening. And that miraculous happening is this. It's not ourselves. It's what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. You see, God came 2,000 years ago as the God-man, Jesus Christ, to stand in our place to take the punishment of our sin, to take on God's wrath. Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins. He stood in your place, and God saw your sin 
upon Christ. And Jesus died on the cross. The wrath of God came upon Christ. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. Jesus Christ died for you. But because he's a perfect, sinless sacrifice, he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And his resurrection demands now our response. And the question is this, have you placed your full faith in Jesus Christ? Upon Jesus Christ, what he did for you. The Bible says this, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ was risen from the dead, you will be saved. All those who cry out in the name of the Lord will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, that means die spiritually, but have everlasting life. Have you personally placed your faith and trust in Jesus? If you're not sure or you know you haven't, right now is the time. You might think like, well, let me get things figured out first. No, let's, today is the day of your salvation, scripture says. That means that you come as you are, but Christ doesn't leave you as you are. He takes you where he is going. So why don't you just pray with me right now? Why, why don't you consider Jesus? Why don't you place your faith and trust in Jesus right now? Uh, this prayer that I'm about to pray isn't gonna save you. It's Christ who's already saved you. I'm just helping you communicate to God. So if you wanna place your faith and trust with Jesus right now, will you just pray along with me? Just say, Lord Jesus, I realize I've sinned and I realize I need a savior. So Lord Jesus, will, will you save me? I place my full faith and trust upon you. Thank you for dying on the cross, saving me from my sins. Thank you for raising from the dead. Help me follow you now. I trust you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus right now, the Bible says you have become a son or daughter of the King. You have been forgiven of your sins. And know this, that once you are held in the grip of God, Nothing can pluck you from his hand. Also know this, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, there's a party in heaven happening right now. Uh, when just one person gives their life to Jesus, the angels rejoice in heaven. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to know more about Kenosha City Church, then check us out online at kenosha.church or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Kenosha City Church. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to follow us so that you never have to miss an episode. At Kenosha City Church, we are not perfect people, but real people being made new through Jesus.